This is an AMI podcast. Hi there. Welcome to the first episode of Connecting Disability for 2023. I'm your host, Megan Gilmore. I'm really excited to spend this time with you. And I know you're probably thinking that I say that every episode which is true. I do say that every episode. But this time, we are talking about space travel. Yes, that's right. We're talking about how disability connects to space travel, maybe even the moon. Our guest is Dina Lambert. She works at NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. And last month, she had the opportunity to go on a zero-gravity flight with an organization called Astro Access. She joined me to talk about disability inclusion in space travel and also what her experience has been like being a blind black woman working in STEM. I really enjoyed getting to know Dina and I hope you do as well. Here's our conversation. Dina, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, I'm super excited to talk to you because you work for NASA. I just need to ask the question everybody wants to know. Are you an astronaut? Am I an astronaut? I certainly have dreams and aspirations of doing that one day. But no, I am not an astronaut. I actually get to work with a few of them. I myself cannot call myself an astronaut, though I am an Astro Access ambassador, which is working towards accessible space flight for people with disabilities in the future. So that is the closest thing I can come to as an astronaut. So we're going to talk about the Astro Access in a few minutes. But before we do that, can you just explain what you do at NASA? Because to a lot of us, we just think NASA is only astronauts. That is a great question. And you're right. A lot of people believe that NASA only hires astronauts. When actuality, we have a pretty diverse workforce of scientists, engineers, budget analysts, administrative folks. I am the inclusive innovation lead for our early stage innovations and partnerships portfolio. But essentially, I am working towards ensuring that a lot of our research investments are equitable and inclusive to as many innovators out there as possible. So they're able to engage and participate in NASA's space technology pipeline. How did you end up in this role? Like I was doing some reading about your educational background. You didn't necessarily start out studying to do your job. Right. First off, I am blind, congenitally blind due to cataracts. Blindness has been a part of my life since the very beginning. What has also been a part of my life has been a, an interest in space, engineering, STEM fields. And I had a desire to become an electrical engineer. So I started out with that pursuit. I participated in a lot of pre-engineering programs that were available back in the 90s. And it was awesome. But one of the challenges that I faced during my early academic studies is that there was not a lot of understanding about how someone who is blind would become an electrical engineer. When I would have professors who are my circuits professors or math professors, it was a bit of a challenge. I don't want to say they were outwardly discouraging me from becoming an engineer. I think being the one and only blind person in the program certainly made for much more of a challenge that I myself at a 19-year-old 
person could really handle. So I, I ultimately switched majors from engineering to business. But I am so thankful that my journey has taken me right back to where I wanted to be and working and leading alongside really incredible engineers and scientists promoting research. For me, like when I was growing up with with my visual impairment, there's kind of like this line of you like don't give up, right? You just try everything, you stay your course and just keep working hard and finding your ways to do what you want to do. And you've done that, but part of that meant switching your major in school from something that you loved since childhood to something new. How did it feel for you to have to make that decision? Um, it was pretty challenging. I remember having to sit down with my parents, you know, having like a family discussion. And of course, my parents, they were incredibly supportive of me going to college because they were not afforded the opportunity to go to college themselves. So I think the bar for success in their mind, I was meeting that bar, meaning that I was in school, I was pursuing a degree, and the expectation out there was that I would have a job. So I think it was more of my ego because so many folks had invested time and effort to support my dream of becoming an engineer and I felt like I was letting them down. To switch to business, I do believe that my time in University of Arkansas's engineering program was very well spent. Of course, if I could go back or I could uh, redo things, yes, I would have wanted to finish that. But my career overall with NASA, starting out as a contract specialist, working with our engineers to develop the requirements that we would send out to private industry to develop these agreements to work alongside government to do space flight to do hardware design I felt like I was getting as close as I could to my original dream and now being part of a team that invests in these really new and emerging technologies and concepts it's come full circle for me I think life has been just a journey overall that has had its turns along the way that ultimately I think has so far written a story that's pretty exciting and an exciting part of it is actually how I first heard about you, which is Astro Access. Can you just tell our audience a little bit about what Astro Access is and what you do with it? So Astro Access is an organization whose mission is to encourage spaceflight or the inclusion of spaceflight for people with all various types of disabilities, ranging from hearing loss, vision loss, mobility differences, as well as cognitive ability. I know a lot of uh, society believes that astronauts are the creme de la creme of society. They are these kind of superhumans when in actuality, if you really get a chance to sit down and talk with our astronaut corps, they're just regular individuals themselves. And they themselves fear that persona of having to be superhuman. But I think with the emergence of space tourism or commercial space flight, we're realizing that space for us as a human species has to incorporate the wide spectrum of ability out there. Astro Access is meant to ensure that people with disabilities are included in our next frontier, which is space exploration. And their motto is, if we can make space available, then we can make any space available on Earth. Meaning that if space is a hard thing to do, then the public spaces and environments that we have here on Earth, they shouldn't be as hard to make inclusive and equitable and accessible. 
You mentioned that you're an Astro Access ambassador. What does that mean? The way that Astro Access completes its mission is through partnership with uh, Zero-G and other suborbital entities. And right now they are using these parabolic flights to determine what are some of the barriers, what are some of the challenges that real folks with disabilities will have to face in a microgravity environment. The ambassador program is meant for individuals who work and are interested in spaceflight to participate in these parabolic flights and undertake experiments where we look at various aspects. For instance, for our deaf and hard of hearing colleagues, we tested out effective visual communication whether it's using American Sign Language or using lights to communicate information. Um, Let's say for some reason, if you were in a space station, could information be conveyed visually in addition to auditorily? And for myself as a blind explorer, how could I understand information quickly as far as navigating from one point to the next using tactile graphics um, and how you do that quickly? How do you orient yourself in an environment where up is not necessarily up or down is not necessarily Mm -hmm. down? There's different ways of navigating because our whole body, the way that we live on Earth is centered around 1G of gravity, of how we move and navigate and orient ourselves is centered around that reference point. But in microgravity, it's very different. So for instance, our crew members who have prosthetic limbs, they are testing out different materials, different types of prosthetic shapes and structures that are more functional in a microgravity environment than they are in an earthbound environment. I think one of our crew members who is almost six feet with his prosthetic found that, hey, without his prosthetic limbs, uh, he could navigate a space much easier. And folks with various forms of paralysis use different types of anchoring techniques so that they're able to work on different type of mechanisms or structures that would give them the stability that they need. And even a simple task of egress or seat docking, which is a basic requirement for any spaceflight explorer, is how quickly can you secure yourself safely for an urgent or emergency situation? That's where you need real people with various types of disabilities. I might have some remaining vision. So it is great to get data points from someone like myself compared to someone with no vision or no light perception at all to ensure that we are factoring in those types of variations in our final recommendations for space exploration. Have you taken a zero gravity flight? Yes, I was part of the second flight or flight two in December, which flew from Houston, Texas. We were able to complete 18 parabolic maneuvers, which gave us 30 seconds of zero gravity 18 times. That happened on December the 15th. It was incredible. (laughs) It's so hard to describe it, but just the word of incredible. So I'm actually going to ask you to try if we can describe at least the whole day for us. Like if you can just walk listeners through like what was the process of going through that whole day of the flight? There were 16 ambassadors selected for the flight too. Since August, we have been working each week to refine our experiments, what we would actually be doing 
doing during flight. So we had been working remotely. And actually for this crew, it also included international participation from Australia, Germany, Spain. It was quite a diverse group. So we all arrived December the 11th to meet face to face to actually start working on our experiments, putting them together with the hardware that we had flown in. We actually did rehearsals in the hotel that we were located. We flew on December 15th. The flight took off at around, I believe, 3 p.m. What that meant is, unfortunately, many of the parabolic flights in the early days started out being known as the Vomit Comet. And that's because it was so new that they really didn't understand how our bodily functions work in microgravity. So what they found is that if we can limit our food intake, our water intake, then you, you'll do fine during the flight. We started out early morning with a light breakfast. We met as a, as a team to do a final rehearsal of the flight. We did five sets of parabolas or parabolas containing five maneuvers. So at each of the fifth or the 10th break, we would change positions so that if you were working on multiple experiments at different positions on the plane, that you could safely navigate to those areas. So that's why we had to do rehearsals beforehand. And surprisingly, uh, we had to go through TSA flight pre-check requirements. So that meant getting a boarding pass with our government issued ID and then go through a metal detector, which again was, uh, we're doing this chartered flight, research flight, but we still have to go through the annoyances of regular domestic flight. We got access to the plane the morning of, we were able to install the experiments, the different hardware on the plane. We boarded the flight around 2.30. The flight attendants and flight coaches on the plane began their pre-flight checks, which is the normal, where is your oxygen mask located, your seatbelts, all of it, which we knew that we were not going to be using our seatbelts very long. (laughs) And once we reached, I believe it was 10,000 feet, we were able to go to our positions where we would begin the parabolic maneuvers. The way that Zero-G achieves zero gravity is to ascend very quickly, and that would give you hypergravity of about 1.8 G or 2 Gs. So that's where they want you laying down with minimal movement in your head or arms so that you reduce nausea or the likelihood of nausea. Then they tell you tipping over. So they have commands that they give you just to let you know what part of the maneuver that they're in. So tipping over is that you're at the peak of the parabola and then release lets you know that you should start experiencing zero gravity. In the first five maneuvers, we set that we wanted to experience Martian gravity, which is probably three-fourths of Earth's gravity. There was not very much noticeable difference. So with that maneuver, I just kind of rolled over on my stomach. I I tried to lift myself up. I wasn't really going anywhere. So when we did our second and third maneuver, we were given lunar gravity. So if anyone has seen the Apollo video, you can see the astronauts kind of bouncing in base. There was some amount of gravity, and that's where I did feel like I was like a a basketball, like it bounced around a little bit more. Um, It was not weightlessness, so my orientation to what was the floor was still the same. But on our fourth and fifth parabola, we did do zero G. That's where I was able to basically float and my instinct was to point my toes toward the ground to find Mm. the floor and I could not find it 
And then I decided, well, what would it be like to do a flip? And I did a flip. And again, in that kind of environment, your senses are so, it's so foreign that even the slightest push of a finger can propel you forward. So that's where I quickly realized that, yeah, I'm kind of jettisoning uh, towards the back of the plane or that the gentleness that it can feel like of doing a flip or standing what would be upside down in a way. I felt like I was experiencing two timelines during that flight. One where time was going by so fast. And once we reached the 18th and final parabola, I was like, what? We we just got up here. I want to do it again. But then also very slowly in that it felt like time was so slow because movement was just so gentle and free. What it sounded like on the plane with 20 plus other people in the flight is we had the focus of a laser, meaning that everyone was focused on what they were doing, their experiments. So you could kind of hear folks reporting out on their findings. For us in the blind crew, we were um, reporting out on our tactile. So you could hear folks in the background doing that. But you could also hear just laughter and shrieks of joy just from feeling the weightlessness and just having fun. I was definitely sad to see it end. And once we landed, I could actually feel the weight of 1G gravity which until you're in zero G, you have no idea what 1G of gravity feels like. What does 1G feel like? I would say the closest feeling would be like a weighted blanket, but just something that's all over your body. A consistent amount of pressure or weight that you feel in your head, your shoulders, your arms, your legs, your feet. Not so much as a fatigued feeling where you're trying to wheel your body forward as you take each step, but just something that was just noticeable that oh something is different and do you get to go up again i hope so (laughs) i really do hope so so actually even though we were officially called flight two astro access has actually done a few flights with the first crew of ambassadors with universities and other companies who wanted to further some of the research so actually i'm looking forward to opportunities for additional zero g flights and certainly i will apply again for mission three What makes you excited about this conversation about making either space exploration or space travel, tourism more accessible to people with disabilities? It's kind of interesting. I have a three-year-old son. I'm a single mom by choice. So my little family is made up of um, my son and my retired guide dog, who's a female black lab. And of course, on our walks, he'll say, mommy, I see the moon. It's like he, he has a direct GPS link to where the moon is (laughs) and in his childlike innocence and amazement he's like I'm gonna go to the moon someday and very well NASA is undertaking the Artemis mission where we are actually have a series of missions that will lead us to returning to the moon for research and to work and live so I really suspect that within the next 50 years or so that we will have men and women working and living on the moon I think that these are the pioneering steps that will ensure that people with disabilities are included in those crews going back to the moon and beyond. The second thing is I think I have bragging rights and, you know, street credit with my son (laughs) for a while when he becomes a teenager and doesn't want to be seen with his mom because he wants to be cool. I can go back and say, hey, I did this really exciting thing in the past that not very many people get a chance to do. So I am still cool. Honestly, 
I think because people with disabilities face so many misconceptions and ill-informed assumptions about our abilities, to be able to do something with spaceflight that still strikes amazement and interest and curiosity from pretty much anyone you talk to, I do think that it can help us push the needle forward when it comes to the expectations of what it's like to live with a disability. We talked about the importance of having people with disabilities included into space travel and space exploration, but there's obviously a lot of problems with accessibility down here on Earth. Couldn't you make the argument that shouldn't we just go about fixing the problems that are here on this planet before we try to send people off into the galaxy? That's a great question, and I know we live in an environment with limited resources, but I definitely would like to offer a different perspective in that, yes, we very much need to address the accessibility needs here on Earth, and we also need to be thinking ahead to where our next frontier is, which is, in some ways, spaceflight. But I'd like to say that we can do both, that we will always have a sector of society who will be interested in investing in spaceflight. And while they are doing that, I would like to promote the idea that we incorporate inclusion um, and accessibility from the very beginning in that effort. While we are working towards accessibility in spaceflight, we can also garner the support of those who are interested in, in investing in an accessible environment here on Earth. In the work that we do at NASA with spaceflight and space technology, we are always incorporating the requirement that while we are building space hardware for the future, it has has to have relevancy and application to the needs that we have here on Earth. And I think in similar ways for your question there, in that we will find new techniques and new technology and new methods that will apply both in spaceflight, but also here on Earth. We see this already with the materials that are used in prosthetics, so lightweight metals or plastics that are stronger than they were 10, 20 years ago. We know this in our voice recognition and AI that we all use every day. If you could go in a time machine and talk to Dina when you're in the middle of deciding to switch majors or even shortly after you made that decision, what what would you say to yourself? Oh my goodness, I I almost think that applies to a lot of things in life. Not just my major, but also at that time, I was making my very first decision to go get a guide dog. I grew up in a family that was very fearful of dogs for very understandable reasons. I am black. Dogs were not used in very positive ways to the African-American community. And so I would probably say it'll be okay. It'll be okay. I held so much regret and so much fear of just failing or disappointment with that decision. And it was okay to change course or to decide to get that guide dog. Now, if I could go back and say, you know, there will be technology that will expand your network so that you won't feel so alone. Stay the course in electroengineering. I would also say that, but I would say trust your gut, trust your decisions. It'll be okay. And to surround yourself with good people, good, solid people who can be a part of your village. Because as I am progressing, 
advancing in my career and really encouraging representation of people with disabilities and women of color in uh, space technology, I would say bring along your village for those adventures because it's well worth it to go it together than it is to go it alone. I know we spend a lot of time talking about sometimes the dis- the disadvantages or struggles that like women will face when we're moving into a space that's been traditionally mainly dominated by men. And then when you add for you being like a black woman and then a black woman with a disability, all those can kind of seem to add on top of each other. I was just wondering like what advantages do you, or strengths do you think that you've brought to your role because you're a black woman with a disability? I think (laughs) I'm laughing because sometimes I have entered meetings or rooms where I am definitely not what people expected. (laughs) So so sometimes that can be. Yeah. So I I don't know if it's, uh, I don't know if the right term is a disruptor, but also to kind of shake things up in that we know in the innovation space that if we get the same ideas from the same place, we're not going to get very much innovation done. But when you incorporate diversity, that's where the wild cards come in. That's where the surprises come in. So sometimes when I enter that room and people are kind of unsure, then sometimes that can be to my advantage. Now, I do have to take responsibility and be prepared to enter in those spaces with thoughtfulness, poise and grace and tenacity. But I can take that advantage of them having to face change and being able to present new ideas and new thoughts and new experiences. I want more of us to be in those spaces and in those rooms where we can address how space flight suits uh, should be designed so they don't look so boxy on female bodies, (laughs) (laughs) which is what I experienced with the Astro Access flights, or that it's not so rare that you see a woman with locks all over the place in a uh, microgravity environment. What do you hope your legacy at NASA is? Oh my goodness, that I can offer up the gift that was given to me, which was not only the ability to dream of being in this type of career, that it becomes more commonplace, that, hey, you just go and do whatever you desire, that it's not just provocative, but there are infrastructures and things in place that are more commonplace. So for example, a lot of people are unaware that NASA makes these investments to small businesses to community colleges, to individuals that can be a part of this space tech pipeline. And what my hope is that more people become aware of it, that they would feel welcomed when they do apply and they come, and that they find that their contribution is valued. And if they look back and say, hey, Dino is in the room and in the lab designing those efforts and initiatives, then that would be something I'm really proud of, that there was space made available for them. Obviously, like you are the next in a line of women and black women who have been making spaces for others to work in STEM and in space. So I just need to ask you, what are your thoughts on the movie Hidden Figures? Oh, my goodness. So definitely, I kind of have two conflicting feelings about this, yeah. meaning that it was so exciting to see so much enthusiasm to hearing these women's stories being told in mainstream media that there were this group of women and it was very true to what 
was happening at the time. For many of our NASA centers, they're on these large campuses and they're separated from East Campus to West Campus. And for many of them had buildings set aside for Black staff members. Of course, that seems like a foreign idea, but it was a thing um, in the early days of space flight. So I'm really excited that the story is being told and recognition is being given. But a little bit sad that it took so long for this to be uncovered and actually told. I know that we all have aspects of our lives that we're, we, we're not as proud of as individuals or even as a collective. But I hope that we are able to face those and acknowledge those more in time rather than it be something that takes 20, 30, 40 years to tell or to, to share. Often when we talk about, like, let's say, like African-American history and then we talk about like disability history, we don't always like bring those two together. Is there anything that you, any stories that you wish other people knew about Black disabled experiences? Oh my goodness. Well, um, I know from my dad and I, I wish I could write a book on this. So unfortunately, what what is part of our history is that the schools for the blind were segregated just as much as public schools were. But the true pioneers back in that time were teachers and educators that came from historically black colleges and universities. So like Tuskegee and Spelman and Howard, who became educators at these schools for the blind, the segregated schools for the blind, they didn't know much about how to teach disabled children or how to teach blind children. And I would want to have their stories told of the level of ingenuity and resilience and innovation that they themselves had to have to learn how to educate and teach these children going forward and help them navigate integration, which would later come in the the 60s and 70s because we know that those schools did exist up until the 70s and even the early 80s. That's great. Dina, I would totally read that book. So final questions that we always ask everyone who comes on the show. You've had to obviously break down a lot of barriers in your life, including the barrier of gravity. But I was just wondering, in what areas of your life do you still sometimes find it difficult to connect with people because of your disability? I think, so for example, while I was in Houston, I wanted to go see uh, Wakanda Forever. I hadn't had a chance to see it because I was, you know, busy taking care of my son and this was my one chance to kind of go on a date <laughs> with myself. <laughs> so here I am. Uh, it was December the 16th. So the day before we were doing this incredible flight and we were in this environment where we had both people with disabilities and those without in this one environment where we were working together. Uh, disability was not such a surprise or a novel idea. It just was. But here I go to the movie and the staff members were, you know, they had such great intent for being helpful and supportive, but because they just were awkward, I think that's <laughs> where you can feel, I don't know if the right word is infantilized or made to feel like a child in that brief interaction. And sometimes I know it's so easy to lose your temper in those situations of, don't you know that I got a chance to do a, a flight that not many people get a chance to do? Not in a sense of being arrogant, but just saying, I know how to use a blanket, you know, <laughs> or I know how to order my own popcorn, or I know how 
to pay uh, for my own popcorn. That can feel so diminishing for what we hope to accomplish, which is raising the level of expectation. What I would say, what would help in those kinds of interactions with strangers, with friends, without disabilities, is just taking the stance of offering, how can I be of support? And letting someone with a disability answer that question. And if the answer is yes, let them tell you how you can be of some help. Don't feel that you have to come with a solution. Oh, I have to know how to do sighted guide or oh, I have to know how to, you know, do braille or I have to know sign language to be able to communicate. Someone with a disability will usually offer you that solution or we can work together to find a solution that makes sense. But if the answer is no, hey, I got it. I don't need any help. Then it's not a knock against you as an individual. That simply that person with a disability or I as a blind person, I got this. I know how to do this. So I think that's what would help kind of bridge that gap of awkwardness (laughs) to something that is more natural and organic human interaction. So yeah, the flip side of the question is for you right now, what does good connection look like? Um, Good connection. I would say, oh my goodness. So I would say authenticity and just slowing down to really see and hear and connect with someone. So in that example of where I went to go to the movies, afterwards, I wanted to pick up a toy for my son and I didn't know the layout of the mall. And this woman was standing out there and she was like, hey, do you need any assistance? And I said, actually, yes, I do. I need to know where a toy store is. And along the way, she was had a moment to show me where to go and it felt okay I was willing to accept that kind of help we got to know each other I know she was you know I found out she was supporting a foster care organization that was doing some fundraising for foster care kids and that's why she was standing out there at a booth and I had $20 to offer and it felt like a really authentic connection where it was just this random interaction that she got to see me and provide support and I actually got a chance to support her in her organization organization's work of supporting kids in foster care. Well, Dina, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. And uh, let me know when they make the movie about you and your adventures and space travel, and I will make sure I go see it. Awesome. I definitely want Taraji to (laughs) be a part of that. She did an incredible (laughs) job. Oh, and Queen Latifah. Yes, I want her. (laughs) So if that movie comes to pass, definitely, I'll let you know. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, with technical production by Nizreen Abdelmajid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to our guest, Dina Lambert. I really hope we get to meet in person sometime soon. And special personal thanks to my friend, Jen Jolliffe, who is the only person I know who keeps a calculus textbook on one of her bookshelves just there for easy access. Jen, I know you didn't get to achieve your childhood goal of being an astronaut, but if you did, we wouldn't be friends and that would make me sad. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll connect next time.